0: Bookworm Games. Welcome back. My name is Wesley Schantz. This is the third installment of our series on Earthbound and its Philosophical Ramifications. Episode 3, My Haunting Melody. In this third strongest episode, we'll look at three individuals. Liar, exaggerate, Frank, the leader of the sharks, and the trumpet player on beak point. And that's a correction. I think I said eagle point last time, but it's beak point. I think if I'm reading... The sign correctly. Anyway, before we begin, I want to say thanks this week to Pat Ward of Ampat Corp, sole corporate sponsor of Bookworm Games, which is so far our imaginary corporate sponsor. Uh, but Pat was one of my co-writers on those Zelda Link to the Past inspired stories that I mentioned last time. And ever since, his insights about education and practicing what you preach have been a big impetus for me to finally get some of these newer projects realized. He's been a loyal listener since we uh, rode the bus to school and ever since up till today, even though he's never actually played Earthbound, um, that's all right. He's got his first kid now to think about. And who knows, maybe when Brady's a little older, he'll play through some of those old classics and you guys can talk about them together. Now, uh, Being a teacher in public schools for about a decade, and then now also online, I've been thinking a lot about uh, how video games could be profitably taught the way that books are taught. But I do recognize that the devil's in the details. What is the way that books are taught? Anyone who's gone to school and had some form of reading that was ruined for them forever by being assigned Um, because it's almost enough just to have the compulsion in itself to ruin it for you. And then you associate reading books with assignments and with sitting through boring classes and unpleasant teachers and all sorts of cliché trappings of school-related misery. All of that is definitely enough to do it, (laughs) even if the book in itself might be good or even great. Um, Though there has been a most regrettable, in my opinion, attempt to engage kids with books that are supposedly more relevant to their lives. And so great books and the very concept of a great book are being called from our reading lists, from our thinking about teaching. Um, But contrary-wise, I think this could also be the very thing that fuels a renaissance in people actually then reading them uh, because most students won't read what's assigned anyway, but kids and people generally do get intrigued by whatever they're told they're not supposed to do. And so if they're told that reading these books is not good for them for some reason, or on the other hand, if they're told by someone whom they actually admire and whose values they share that the books are actually quite good, and it's, and it's a shame that they don't get to read them in school, well, maybe they will go on and, and read them. And I think it's a, it's a really delicate balance though, this art of getting people to read, getting people to want to learn great stuff, and think about it, Um, but I have seen it work. I've seen it work in schools where there's a healthy culture, and uh, then by that kind of reverse psychology that you're describing, there's also the chance for it to happen in ones where there isn't a a culture of reading, and it's certainly true for people who get free of school, that later on their interest in actually learning, and not just uh, rebelling, or doing the work for a grade, or whatever it is, can really be reborn. And so I believe that there's an audience of people like this uh, out there, and I do hope that some of them are listening and that these words of encouragement do find their way to them in a good hour. I think, too, um, that like reading great books, playing games like Earthbound will speak for itself, as I've said. Uh, Maybe the same ones, the same books, the same games, won't say quite the same things to everyone. But what schools could be, are places for people to share whatever good they have been able to take from the books and the games. And there are certainly places to learn a language in which to do this, to have these conversations, to begin to see patterns in them, to benefit from a wealth of all that we've inherited from people who've read them before us. And uh, people in other places and other times have gained from these, these works. Now, picking up the thread from from a couple of weeks past, uh, we've got BuzzBuzz's words ringing in our ears and their unexpected echoes in Hamlet running through our mind. We've got the soundstone in our pocket or down at the bottom of your yellow backpack. And we've got a taste of Proust's petite madeleine, or whatever you named your favorite food, since that's many, many letters too long. Uh, that taste and that smell is lingering in our nostrils and our breath and in our tongue, and so you set out from home once more in the daytime to find the first your sanctuary location, Giant Step, and to explore your hometown, Onet. First, you may recall that Liar Exaggerate, the strange and slightly creepy guy who lives up the hill, asked for you to visit him so he could show you something. You don't need to go pay that visit. The story will progress just the same whether you do or not. But if you choose to retrace your steps up to his door, you'll find him waiting eagerly for you. One of those people that one hardly has the heart to put up with, even less to take pity on or feel curiosity towards. For me, that's what Liar Exaggerate represents, a a kind of limit of imaginative sympathy. He's just sort of sad and gross. And yet, if you do follow him down, that hole that he's dug through the floorboards of his house and through the winding tunnel that he's excavated into the hill, his face turned eagerly, eagerly to see if you're following all the way, at the end you'll come to a small chamber, lit by the eerie sheen of a golden statue. As he rambles on about his garlic diet and his hopes for further discoveries, you may notice the statue's horns, its sword, the way its eyes seem to follow you, and the surreal, surreal sparkles emanating from it, which if you inspect with the check command, and you can use the L button for that, I don't know if you discovered that. I think it's short for lazy. If you use the check command, it's accompanied by a synesthetically twinkly sound effect seeming to echo in some space that's larger or otherwise dimensioned than the little dead-end room. You learn uh, later, uh, after you've left liar exaggerate down there, and after you've climbed back to the light and the fresh air of your adventure, and you've left him to his spades and his wheelbarrows of dirt, and his meretricious promise of further hoard to discover that this one treasure will be taken from him and betray him and abandon him soon. And so that in despondency, he'll dig no more for the rest of the game. Possibly he's got an analog in the old man in the cave and mother, although my mother, lore is, is rusty at this point. Um, I seem to remember a character who lives deep in a cave. And and he may also have one in the Beatles song, Fool on the Hill. Now he certainly has a parallel in Carpainter, the cult leader whom we'll next see in the company of what we will learn is known as the Mani Mani statue, two weeks or so from now. And then later on in Manitoli, uh still some months away, we'll see another parallel there. And not least in Ness himself, or whatever name you've chosen, after you complete the Soundstone melody, and you must confront your shadow in the form of an inner demon, which is none other than that golden figure idolized by Lyre and his greedy ilk. But just as tantalizing as that sparkly sound effect, or those foreshadowings, is a connection between Lyre X adjurate and the creator of Earthbound, Shigesato Itoi who also made his name in advertising. So he too is a billboard guy. And he's also connected then to the dungeon designer uh, that you meet later in winters, Brick Road, and then Dungeon Man. And, uh, and he's one of my favorite characters in the game. So, so for this week's commentary, um, and I believe for next week as well, I'm gonna be availing myself of a few secondary sources for a change. Um, as well as the primary ones, and, uh, and, and this comes in the form of a book called Legends of Localization. This is the second book in that series by Clyde Mandolin, a, uh, a localizer uh, who has incidentally uh, been instrumental in the online Earthbound community at Starmen.net, uh, where you can find an incredible profusion of fan-made material, and resources about the game, and the series of games. Um, now, uh, part of the reason that I talk about this now is because Ittoy uh, also appears in the form of a magazine story that's stuffed in the back of the couch in the house on beak point overlooking the sea. When, later in the game, you're able to afford it, you can go in to find that magazine story, and also to find that the back wall of that house has been missing the whole time. And so you have a view of the beach and and often I like to imagine in a flatland esque sort of way that you might be getting able, getting to be able to see the other sides of things to which you only have the, the normal top down view normally, um, that you're able to explore. What would it be like to explore the background through that broken wall and going onto the beach and, uh, sort of the way that you get to, to pass through the hole in the back of the traveling entertainer shack uh, to access the caves leading up to Giant Steppe. And I especially like to imagine what it would be like to go on over the other side of the hill where the meteorite landed. And I wrote a story about that once, and I put it up on Starmen.net somewhere, and I had uh, Picky as the, as the protagonist of that story. Um... As the online community amply attests, there's, there's many who've played the game who felt drawn to add, just add on to it in that same kind of way, imaginatively. Now, uh, the story itself, that's It Toys story, uh, that you find in the couch, is about being pulled over for speeding and then trying to get out of the ticket by telling the cop that your wife is giving birth to a demon baby. So it's a kind of spoof on tabloids, um... It's written, apparently, specifically for EarthBound. Um, and so, uh, let me just turn to the the Legends of Localization um, summary uh, uh, of who this guy is, who Shigasato Itoi is. Um, so you'll find this on page 50 of this lovely book. Um, it says here, heading, the, the Man Behind the Games. So I'm quoting... EarthBound is known for its unconventional ideas and creative gameplay mechanics, yet the game wasn't designed by a normal game designer at all. The Mother series was created by Shigesato Itoi. Itoi has participated in so many different professions throughout his career that it's hard to even begin to describe him. He's primarily known for his famous copywriting work. His catchy slogans and inventive marketing phrases rocketed him to the top of the industry during Japan's copywriting boom in the 1980s. Itoy's creative success led to a wealth of other opportunities, including, and there's a bullet point list, composing lyrics for hit musicians, writing articles for culture magazines, hosting educational television shows for children, acting in films with popular celebrities, holding annual fishing tournaments with popular comedians, co-hosting radio programs, searching for legendary lost gold on national television, voice acting characters in popular animated films, starring in famous commercials writing and compiling short stories, there you go, and localizing American children's books into Japanese. That's just the tip of the iceberg and doesn't even cover all the awards he's won in different industries. Basically, Shigesato Itoi has the knack for seeing things in interesting new ways, so it's no wonder that his game-related side projects were filled with unique inventiveness, too. Okay, and I I think it's spot on. I mean, um, I don't normally, like to give too much credence to uh, uh, contextualizing works and, and looking at their authors. I think it's a bit ad hominem and, and not always that productive because you have to sort of say, okay, so what? Um, but in this case, I think it really is an interesting reflection if we're looking at individualities in the game to see the individuality, this incredible uniqueness of the guy who is uh, primarily responsible for creating the game. Now, uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, now, I can't I can't move on into this too much, but I do just want to point out that one other extremely interesting point about Itoi's uh, inspiration for the game is uh, mentioned late in the book because it comes late in the game. It is uh, to do with the game's final boss fight with Gigas, and uh, it gives us another angle on these central themes of home and family and self. Um... So I'll read a little bit more from, from the book here, Legends of Localization. This comes on page 290. Uh, the traumatic inspiration behind Giga's dialogue. Shigesato Itoi has stated that the mixture of pain and joy that Giga speaks about was inspired by a traumatic childhood memory. As a young boy in the 1950s, Itoy visited a movie theater but accidentally went into the wrong screening room. He saw a scene from Kempe to Barabara Shibijin, and that translates, The Military Policeman and the Dismembered Beauty, a mystery film with elements that were considered dark and appalling at the time. The scene in question involved a woman being murdered while making love to her fiance. The sickening mixture of pain and pleasure greatly disturbed the young Itoi, who ran home and barely spoke a word that night. Itoi wanted players to experience that same feeling, during the final battle of Mother II, so he wrote Giga's text to include a combination of pain, pleasure, and more. Itoi recalls another incident that inspired Giga's dialogue. This is a quote from Itoi. Giga snaps and loses his mind, as you know. Well, this probably isn't the nicest topic to bring up, but a long time ago, I happened to witness a traffic accident. A young woman was lying on the ground, but instead of saying, I can't breathe or help, she cried out, it hurts. That really disturbed me. I felt that having Geek say this same line would make you reluctant to attack him even though he's the enemy. He's even calling your name the entire time. As for the line, it's not right. It means what you're doing isn't right and what I'm doing isn't right. I have to say a chill went through me when I was coming up with all these lines. And it's chill comes through me as I read them too. And uh, and I don't want to get too into that because we've got to save it for when we get there. But I think it, again, it connects with the story this funny, you know, story, this tabloid style story of, of speeding and using the excuse that your wife is giving birth, right? There's the motherhood. Um, there's the uh, the drive toward a goal, right? And, and yet there's something kind of twisted about it. Um, and yeah, there's much more to say about that. But another time it'll have to be. And we're, we're talking about this because we're on the seaside. Uh, we're at the seaside real estate with its uh, Easter egg. And out there on the point, accessible right from the start of the game, is the um, sound. Or sorry, the second. Uh, I've hard time reading my own handwriting. <laughs> it's the second of our triumvirate for today, the trumpet player. All right. So like any other townsperson, he walks in place, and he's always facing west. You know, the opposite of east. Unless he turns briefly to face you if you talk to him from some other direction. Now talking, like checking the statue, you can do that with the L button if you want to play with one hand and drink or eat with your other hand, right? So if you talk to him, it'll trigger a sound, just like with the Mani Mani statue. Only this time, it's a recognizable melody. It's the opening of the second movement, Largo, from Dvorak's Ninth Symphony from the New World. And uh, now a bit of a digression on the word then. So both names, Largo and New World, uh, are actually descriptions, really. The one of how to play the music, right, it's a kind of tempo, Largo. And so thus it's read as part of the form of the music. And Largo means slow, right, long, literally. So you're pulling out the notes, or if you like, you're, you're lingering over each one and the melody itself somehow expresses longing whether it's uh, because Dvořák was writing it in America when he was ex- inspired by some uh, musical ideas that he encountered here from Native Americans and from African American spirituals. That's one thing that I've read about the piece, again, drawing on the illustrious secondary source Wikipedia and the, uh, and the notes that I've seen in, in some of the concerts that I've gone to where it's performed. Uh, they'll tell these kind of stories. Or, okay, here's the other option. Um so so, either he's expressing in that sense the longing of the people in America, right, those groups of people, their longing, their spiritual strivings, as W. E. B. Du Bois would say, or it's out of Dvorak's own longing for his own homeland, which he is separated from. It's a musical motif anyhow, which seems to be cognate uh, in many cultural traditions. I think it's called a pentatonic scale. I don't know enough about music to get too technical, but that's, again, what I've read. And and it's a simple and moving melody, and it is, in turn, developed in the full symphony into something very complex, and in something that is fairly, I think, one of the great compositions of, of that time and place, or of any time and place. Um, I, I don't really have much more to say about that. Um, I feel that at a certain point, to describe music in words seems a little silly. It's maybe representing, you know, a kind of imaginative limit. Again, not of sympathy this time, but but of what I can put into words. At least for me, that's that's a limit. Um, speaking about great music, but but do listen to the piece. I would say that much if if you have the time, because it will take you on a journey that's well worth the taking. Um, so, if it's a description of an American land and its peoples. As grasped by this um, visitor from the old world, then we are honored by the depiction, and and if it is a love letter of Dvorak's to his own homeland, then we can at least take credit for having caused the separation which gave rise to it. Um, but but most likely it is uh, it is both of these at once. And, and in a more abstract sense, it sort of conjures the very idea of homeland of, of, as a universal concept and something that's innate and that shines through uh, the particulars just because of being the sort of beings that we humans are. And uh, and I think it's an interesting choice of a melody to put here for the trumpet player to uh, to play um, because of the way that it is largo. It, Cuts across the much more upbeat allegro, uh, happy onet theme, and and it then reminds us of uh, again that underlying similarity between the notes, where the uh, the style and the and the tempo have have been changed, but but the basic notes are are essentially, to me, to my ear at least, they sound quite similar um, between the largo and those songs that we looked at last time, the songs in your home, the songs for your soundstone melodies. Um, and so, I think, again, you could just take the further abstraction and say, well, by extension, there's a kind of similarity between all songs, insofar as they're all made up of a few notes, right, uh, and the tones might shift a little bit, but but there's 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 this universal, which is music, which you find in all times and places, subject, of course, to all sorts of subjective interpretations. Um, the same night, the same notes underlie all those songs and, and everything is in how they're arranged. And so within that universality, there's a incredible wealth of particulars. Um, uh, now I don't want to get too bogged down in this. Um, sometimes I worry that I sound, uh, just really, really out there. Now the same notes, um, and how they're related, ah, that's right. Because of because of the way that they're related, then that form right becomes indissoluble from their meaning, from their material, uh, and it's all bound up together uh, for us as listeners. So, so I think that's what part of what is meant by by the trumpeter calling it his haunting melody. He says my haunting melody. And now, um, being only the opening of the song too. Uh, that first part of the Largo especially parallels your first uh, sanctuary melody. When you're ready to pick it up soon, you'll see that it breaks off without a resolution, really. And so it haunts in that sense, too, until you manage to reconnect it to the rest of that hole from which it has been taken, its context. And for the Largo, that's in the reality of you as the player, which is interesting. Now, uh, I take this to be... Uh, Part of Earthbound's Earthbound's insistence on on calling attention to itself as a game throughout, to remind you to integrate the experience of playing it within a much fuller real life, right, outside the game, including the game. Um, Before you either go on with your quest for the soundstone, or or you save the game and turn it off, however, there is one more stop that we're going to make here in town, this time in the heart of Onet, and not on its outskirts. And this time we encounter uh, a clear foil for Ness himself, and not a kind of imaginative limit or extreme, and sort of abstract things we've been talking about. Well, except in this sense, right? In this respect, um, Frank is a kind of limit, because he's your first real challenge of the game. Uh, And it's at that limit, right, where you face such challenges, where you uh, have the possibility of, of significant growth, or a failure. Um, you can see Frank uh, with his red suit, his blonde mullet, and his angular shades strolling around the backyard of the arcade. And there's some sort of contraption there. I used to think that it looked like a doghouse. Anyway, it turns out to be a, a tank, a battle robot, Frankie Stein Mark II, that's crouching behind a tree Now, of course, you can't just jump the fence as you could easily do in real life if you learned how at a young age so as to avoid fiddling with those pesky latches on gates and out of sheer exuberance because maybe you saw an older friend do it once and you conceived the determination that you should be able to as well. Now, instead, you have to fight your way through the streets on the block that circumscribes the arcade and the coming soon mock pizza. That's a great location for it. And it's good for you that you do, because without the experience you gain trouncing all his cronies, you would have little hope of overcoming fail-proof Frank. Quite possibly, like me, you will even lose against a gang of sharks, or under the withering attacks that Frank brandishes a knife at you one too many times. Um, But if this happens, don't despair. You can return after summoning all your courage and energy to try again. Or you can just reset the game to avoid losing half of any cash you had on you and all of your PP, psychic points. Losing, as anyone knows, is part of the game. And a good game teaches you how to deal with losing, how to learn from it, to reset, and then fix it. Or maybe just get better prepared for next time so that if it was bad luck, then you won't be as susceptible to it if it happens again. Now. Maybe you just buy a couple more hamburgers, or you dig them out of the garbage cans, or you gain another level or two, picking off the sharks one by one, or ones and twos, rather than en masse, like their real-world corollaries, the ignorant and faceless yes-men, the fierce young rebels on wheels, the hip-gyrating youth with or without hula-hoops to cloak their lechery, the sharks all seek attention by blending in with one another which suggests that they mostly crave belonging. And they're harmless enough when they're dealt with individually or in twos and threes. But they can overwhelm you in crowds. I see this as a substitute teacher in classrooms. (laughs) Now, better yet, you could see this uh, contrast by making your way to the treehouse hideout, where Ness's friends are playing. Each of them is a distinct personality, though they aren't given names. And needless to say, they don't attack you, even uh, even the way Everdred will in Berglund Park, later in a, in a spirit of roughhousing competition, rather than the uh, kind of rudderless aggression that the sharks treat you with. Um, anyway, that's what Everdred claims, at least. But um, instead, you know, one of your friends tells you about a dream he had about you traveling with a girl, and he asks you to tell her hi from him. One gives you his Mr. Baseball cap, a sturdy protection for the head, a kingly gift. And one confesses bashfully and bravely how much he likes you. And if, if anything will, that would give you some renewed heart to take on Frank. A few of the sharks, too, it, it has to be said, um, don't just jump you. They instead show uh, flashes of individuality and and differentiation. Uh, One of them is coming to accept his love of fresh veggies and and seeing whether he can reconcile this with his super cool persona. Uh, One of them claims that Frank is not just building a mechanized weapon out back, but uh, actually meditating on peace and love. And one recites a poem incorporating onomatopoetic saliva. It's a poem about chewing gum. When you do reach Frank himself, he loses his patience quickly when you are silent in response to his asking your name. Presumably, this represents not your fear clamming you up, but your unwillingness to compromise, even to the point of bandying any words with this laissez-faire leader of the town hooligans. It suggests also, for me at least, another uh, great limitation of this game, uh, one that's brilliantly picked up on by the strongly earthbound influenced, surprisingly quite popular, wildly popular recent work Undertale. Um, it picks up on uh, that that Gigas fight actually, and in that game, uh, you don't you don't always have to fight, right? And surely we'll have to talk about that one of these days, but. But in Earthbound, the story really only progresses through RPG-style battles, and the only way to win them is by RPG-style fighting, leveling up with some very small room for luck and guts and strategy. Um, yeah, with the major exception of the Gigas fight, right? Which, un- unforgettably, breaks out of that. Um, and, uh, and sort of adumbrates the sort of thing that Under- Undertale will develop much more thoroughgoing way, and, and integrate into its thematic material, its storyline. Um, all of that will merit some discussion in its own right. But that will be another time. All I can say now about uh, about this in Earthbound's defense is that, um, well, at least its violence is highly stylized, right? It only ever takes the form of light and sound effects based on some text commands and some numerical calculations of costs and damage and and so on. Um, And so in this respect, again, I think you can take an abstract view, then the fighting, uh, it represents, right, in a fairly straightforward way, the struggle, the pursuit of your goal, the obstacles and overcoming which make you more capable to deal with future obstacles. And so there's this accumulation of experience and there's this this gradation of levels, these plateau after plateau uh, of of further development, um, which are measurable, right? Measurable improvement. Uh, which is a kind of upward spiral and and uh, feeds on itself in a in a positive way right and and it unlocks right psychic powers right that 's a got to be symbolic for for new knowledge new understanding wisdom right you 're not only of course responsible for dealing out damage either uh, your your health scrolls down with each blow that you receive, and each choice that you make to attack leaves you open to being attacked in turn. And you never know when the smash will go against you. And it turns out it's fairly consistently when you're fighting the rowdy mouse denizens of Giant Step. Um, you suffer not physically, um, right? not you as the player, but in sympathy with, with Ness and his friends. When they fall, and, and you certainly feel frustration if you're knocked out and you have to restart. Or you might even quit, which is galling. Um, and it must be said, you suffer a certain amount of tedium too, because um, you know you gotta fight all these battles and level up and all that good stuff. Though Earthbound addresses this to, to an extent in a few novel ways, um, not only with the auto fight command, so you can just kind of zone out during battles, read something else if you want. Um, but as the friendly mole explains, if you sneak up behind enemies, you can surprise them. And frequently, if they're caught on their own, you can win without a fight. So in this respect, we get a glimpse of an ideal toward which you strive, another kind of limit, the ideal being victory, of course, and it's not effortless exactly, but in a way it is, in some ultimate sense, which is at times actualized in these glimpses you get. It's what's called Taoism, uh, I think, Wu Wei, action without action. You could call it you know, Western you know, Judeo-Christian terms, grace, perhaps. So that all of your sufferings, all this stylized symbolic violence, is for some purpose. And it's not just that your might makes your right, but that you must make the sacrifice of of hurting as well as being hurt, in order to get to a place of peace, which actually means something. And so there's this mixture of pleasure and pain, and maybe it's not all that pleasant, but there is, you know, Something about that, which which is part of the rules of the game. However, you conceive of that. And uh, one last thing I'd say there too is that you're defeating enemies—it's always you—they're defeated, or or if it's an animal, usually they're tamed, right? You're not you're not actually killing things in this game. Um, as we touched on uh, in in the end of the last episode. Sorry if I was rambling a bit there too, but. But there's this obsession with violence and of strength uh, that's dramatized in all these games from that, from that time, and I guess most video games, honestly, which seems to me to be a response to the violence of the 20th century, just as much as it's aligned with myths of monster-slaying heroes. Um, so for a proud country like Japan to have been not only defeated, but devastated, and exposed to the unimaginable catastrophe of nuclear annihilation, and then to put itself back together in close cooperation with the former enemy, the United States, and with all the vast shifts to the economy and the culture and the society that goes with that transformation, the portrayal of these three solitary individuals, and then of Eagle Onet as a whole, uh, it begins for me to brim with significance. You've got liar exaggerate, who highlights the loneliness, the temptation to, to dig inward when all that's there to be found is a specious refuge and specious strength and gilded resentment and delusions of grandeur. He's like Dostoevsky's Underground Man, or Richard Wright's Invisible Man. No, not Richard Wright, sorry, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. No, Frank, on the other hand, seems to have the the right idea, going to Giant Step, as we're told, by one of the townspeople and, and trying to meditate. We'll give him the benefit of the doubt, trying to meditate on peace and love. But the the place doesn't speak to him. And uh, just as you refuse to speak to him, for he surrounded himself with these flunkies that are given over to their basest desires, rather than to surround himself with true friends like yours who play in the treehouse. He relies on his own strength and when that fails, he relies on that of his contraption. But it's only after failure that he begins to see where he where he went wrong, what he was missing, that which Ness alone and his friends, when you meet them, possess, apparently. None of the foes do. And that's, of course, the capacity to grow stronger, in which they have apparently limitless potential. And to Frank's credit, he realizes this. And if you visit him then after... Uh, after his defeat, he'll uh, he'll offer the same effect of recovery, as you get from visiting home. So the arcade is once more made safe for everyone, and not just those who wear the right outfit and project the right persona. Um, the image of people gathered together to play, yet each separate on his or her own arcade game, is so interesting symbolically, as to almost, but not quite, make up for the fact that the games are not actually playable. Uh, but again, perhaps this should indicate Ness's purity, the kind of strength that he is after, right? So he's not going to waste his time playing video games. Well, anyway, we'll look at that more in all the social and political and economic dimensions of Onet and Eagle Land next time. Uh, the last of our three individuals, just to keep recapping here, last of our three individuals from this time, the trumpet player on the point, overlooking the sea, calls himself the happiest man in the world. It plays a haunting melody, my haunting melody, he calls it, having made it his own, the way you make your sanctuary your own. And then sharing that insight with anyone in town who can hear it. He is insh- in sharing that inspiration with the whole town. Just as you go out to save the whole world, and then you sh- you, you share in the earth's power which it has lent to you to use as your own. Um, the trumpet player is, this is kind of interesting, the westernmost figure in the town, which is itself most representative of the conquering western culture, right? He plays a song from another reality, from our own, and it harkens back to another homeland, Dvorjak's Bohemia, and yet, And facing west and looking over the ocean, he's in fact oriented towards the Far East, right? The homeland of the game developers who are irrevocably permeated with the same globalizing forces which allow us in our living rooms in the United States to play this work that was created in Japan. As if that weren't enough, I'll just note in passing, the two illusions made by the giant steppe Right, the footprint of some incredibly powerful yet apparently absent being. He was heading up over the mountain to judge by his footprint there. And it seems uh, heading to that inaccessible other side. So the Giant Steps, uh, that name is a a jazz album of John Coltrane. And uh, you know, for music, uh, artists like Coltrane are, are something of what Proust was for literature and Proust's, you know, followers in the 20th century. And jazz and, and rock and roll music, these are, you know, incredible um, uh, influences on on Earthbound, which we'll have to talk about sometime. And then the second thing briefly here then is that, of course, Giant Step is uh, making a, a connection to the, the phrase uh, on the moon landing, right? The astronaut's phrase... Uh, the small step and the giant leap. You put those together, you get giant step. And uh, I love that image of walking on the moon that it c- connotes here, that, that you, you see the whole round earth from the perspective of a traveler who has left it and is hoping to return. So again, we'll return next week to speak about the arcade, the library, the town hall, the police station, these kind of social settings. And we'll wrap up, uh, for now, our discussion of your hometown and reflect on some of the social critique next week as well that Earthbound seems to share with nothing so much as a film like Ikiru, To Live, by Kurosawa, Uh, a movie which itself is replete with allusions to to classic literature. Uh, So for now, uh, take care.